Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Welcome to episode 24, part 4 of Terroir. On today's episode, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We're finally moving on from that topic. The podcast patrons voted on that topic on terroir, and I couldn't fit it into one episode. And in fact, it was actually really hard for me to cut it down into three episodes. Um, but m the reason why I, I took the time to do that is my hope is that this podcast serves as a learning tool. And part of the vision was to be able to make something that was not supported by distracting or annoying ads, because I don't like to listen to them when I listen to podcasts. So I didn't want to make a podcast with a bunch of ads that uh, was needed to support it. And I also didn't want to rely on sponsorships to be able to provide this information. However, it does cost money to provide something like this for free. So I created a Patreon account for this podcast. And all of these episodes, all 24 of them so far, are made possible by the patrons who donate a few dollars a month to help me pay for hosting fees, upgrading my equipment, and they help me set aside time to write and record these episodes. Out of the average of 1,200 listeners per episode, I currently have 76 patron supporters. Those 76 people make it possible for me to carve out time during the week and to make these episodes available for free to everybody else. So if you learn something or see coffee in a different way after listening to these episodes, consider joining the 6% and help me make more episodes. You can go to patreon.com slash making coffee. Okay. Now, today's actual episode is a companion episode to episode 19 called Botanical Awareness with Aurora. Aurora is a researcher of people and plants. Her undergraduate work was a double major in anthropology and environmental studies. She worked at Rishi Tea and Botanicals as a tea educator, and she also has a master's in ethnobotany, which is the study of people and plants. In episode 19, we covered some basics, and in today's episode, we get to dig into a few points that I'm really interested in, which are like the differences and similarities between tea and coffee. So even if you're not a tea lover or even a tea drinker, I think that there's a lot that the coffee industry can learn. One of the differences we explore is how tea is largely consumed in its botanical origin. Tea originates in China, and China continues to be the largest producer and consumer of tea. Tea growers have a strong tradition of being tea drinkers. The opposite is true with coffee. Coffee is not consumed largely in its botanical origin. Coffee growers do not have a culture of drinking their coffee. In fact, many coffee growers in countries like Rwanda are more likely to drink tea than they are coffee. Another thing we talk about in this episode is stress and tasting tiredness in plants. In the conversation, Aurora mentions a story about oxidative stress that I don't have the recording of. So before we get started, I wanted to share it here instead of interrupting the conversation later on. So to set up what Aurora talks about later in the episode, I need to tell you the story that she told me of a happy accident. It was the early 1900s. One spring, a tea grower in Taiwan noticed an insect infestation in his tea garden. He didn't know it then, but it's now been identified as a green leafhopper, and it's an aphid. This insect came through his garden and was eating all of his tea leaves. 
His entire crop was affected. And you can imagine how devastating that would be. But he needed money, so he was still planning to try and sell his tea. And people thought he was crazy to try and sell this damaged tea. But what else could he do? So nervously, he harvested the leaves and made an oolong out of it, and then carried it down to the trading ports. And even though the tea looked visually damaged, when the buyers sampled it, they loved it. Instead of getting low prices, he actually got a premium, and eventually this style would end up winning competitions. He was so thrilled to be able to sell the damaged tea that it was at one point known as Braggart's Tea, because the tea grower boasted about his achievement. Not only did he sell his tea, but he actually sold it at a high price. And his neighbors, who saw the conditions of the tea, didn't believe that he got such a high price for the tea, so it has also been nicknamed Liar's Tea. But why would an insect-damaged tea be more delicious than a non-insect-damaged one? The key is oxidation and enzymes. An oolong is a semi-oxidized leaf. This step, this tea insect damage, adds another layer of oxidation that's not possible by human hands. As the insects feed on the leaves, they make microscopic holes, and this causes the leaf to oxidize from the outside in. This causes damage, and then the plant releases specific enzymes to protect itself, while at the same time sending extra stored sugars to the part of the plant that's needed for recovery. The plant is protecting itself from the insect attack, and the defense response produces new flavors and a naturally sweet aroma in the finished tea. And this aroma can be described as caramel or honey-like. The natural sweetness that develops is a direct byproduct of the plant's natural defenses. This aroma is meant to attract predators of the attacking leafhopper. The sweetness is the tea plant's cry for help which is incredible. You can imagine that the plant is under attack and it's screaming and it's saying help and its cry for help is sending out this aroma that attracts other insects that will come and eat the insects that this plant is being attacked by, which is just a completely fascinating system. So even though the tea was visually damaged, that the product of this attack was something very desirable, and it was something that tea buyers were willing to pay a premium for. There's so much to learn in this story, and I want to come back to it at some point later on, maybe in a different episode. But for now, I just want you to remember this as a story of delicious stress and how stress can be delicious. And now, let's jump back into my conversation with Aurora, where she begins by talking about over-extraction. Another thing on that is just talking about brewing in the last episode. It is important to brew and like on this vein, it is important to be aware and brew teas well, or meaning don't over extract them unnecessarily because um, it can bring out harsh uh, phytochemicals or a harsh combination of different phytochemicals in the leaf that can upset your stomach. Um, and as you're talking about that, tea is a very bittersweet plant in its taste. Um, it was consumed as a bitter vegetable or for as a tonic and as a food before humans realized that there's these other compounds in there. And when we do this or that, it becomes more floral and it was transitioned into more of a beverage. So at its core, it's a very hearty green that was foraged collected, what words you want to use there, um, 
So it requires skill to be made well, and it also requires some attention in brewing to make sure that that sweetness and those aromatics and those flavors make it to your cup. And if you over extract, you're going to get a lot of those um, harsh compounds, harsh for if, if meaning like if your body doesn't receive them well. I mean, everyone's body receives them differently, but talking to enough people over the years about tea, hearing like, oh, I have a reaction to this or, you know, I don't like this one. And it kind of a lot, some of the, some, in some cases it can be solved by talking about how they're brewing. I was like, oh, you're brewing black tea for 15 minutes. That's a little long. And just because like, oh, throw the tea bag in the mug and you're ready to go. Doesn't mean you should do that. (laughs) You know, like you're for how, for what's the goodness that's in tea. You're going to get the most out of any leaf, no more than five minutes, right? Um, unless it's in it's in a blend and it's cut and there's different, you know, it's a tea blend uh, with different botanicals and, you know, it's a kind of a different story because you're bringing in all of those plants' phytochemicals and what's ending up in your cup is just a blend of, you know, who knows how many. But as far as tea is concerned, don't oversteep because it, it is harsh. You know, I think something else that I think would be worth talking about is, especially with white teas, I remember when I first started to get them, it's really hard for a tea novice or just somebody really first getting into tea to disconnect the color and like brew strength. So brewing something that doesn't have a lot of color for a short amount of time and then looking at the liquid and saying, well, was that enough? Like we use visual oh, clues so often. Yeah. And, and at some point, like, first of all, there's there's that point that you can't always do that with the white teas. Um, and so that we do tend to over extract because we think we want to get some color out of it to prove that there's something in. in yeah, the I'm guilty of that, too. And yeah, the, I'm always second guessing it. <laughs> and the other thing I'd like you to talk about, actually, is I got into loose leaf teas pretty early, mm-hmm. but I, I got into um, it still took a long time from when I started to get away from tea bags, get loose leaf tea and brew them and these beautiful pots and then getting into more of the like when I got a guy Wong and it was just so much more concentrated and then being able to steep a tea five six seven times and like that is such a different concept for most tea novices like we're so used to one tea bag one time and then you uh, so when I first started getting these really expensive Mm -hmm. teas I was just like wow how am I going to pay $50 for this but it's like oh we brew it seven times And then it really makes the cost a lot more um, reasonable. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about like that transition? So we in America really have our vision of what tea looks like from British culture, right? Um, And that has always stuck around. And that's how many people brew tea. And I think more and more in New England and on the East Coast, um, and throughout America, it's different all over. But I would see like that's one side of the spectrum. But just if you look, if you just compare these two cultures, they're on opposite sides of the world. Um, British culture, you have these large teapots and a cup, small teacups and saucers, right? Um, and the different utensils that they use and how they brew their tea is a large pot, large volume of water, and a few teaspoons of of tea leaf in there right and they're very they can be swimming in the pot and there's actually a cultural thing where it's like you're not supposed to swirl it 
because that will bring out more bitterness. You're just supposed to like let it sit and you're supposed to strain it out. That, that's fine. That's one way. The complete opposite side of that is to have a very small teapot, which many Americans I've talked to do not understand, like the volume of it, but the potency's there, mind you. But it's just completely opposite. So as you're talking about in the last episode, understanding those variables in brewing tea means that you can adapt to any size teapot. So when you have such a small size or like a gaiwan or a yixing teapot, um, that's packed full of leaves where they're not swimming, they're just stationary in the pot with enough room to unfurl completely, you can't possibly let it seep for minutes. Some people do. I've seen it. I've tried it. It's very, very strong tea. Um, but the, that just shows like the power that the leaf has. It's so strong. And as I keep bringing up, tea has this bittersweet character and if you don't brew and tease out the sweetness appropriately, the bitter is just going to wash over you like a wave. Um, so in the small teapots, um, they're, they're great. I brew in a gaiwan. I travel with a gaiwan in a cup in like a little cloth, pa- cloth pouch um, because it can tease out some aromas and some kind of deep rudeness out of the leaf that you cannot get in larger teapots and um, also like the kinetics of it, the shape and the seal, uh, like the aroma seal that the, that the lid makes. It just teases out things and delivers a potency that you can't in larger vessels. So there's no great, perfect vessel for anything. There are some teas that I would say need to be brewed in some to get to brew the tea to the, to the tea's highest potential. Um, so there's no like right or wrong there, but if you just think of those two on a spectrum, the Gaiwan versus a large, uh, English style teapot, you're just going to get a completely different experience for sure. And the English style really evolved with a black tea culture, um, not initially, but eventually in how it is today is like a black tea culture. If you put an oolong in there, like a ball rolled oolong, you totally can do it. I've done it. Um, but it's kind of strange, right? Oolongs really evolved out of Chinese culture and with gaiwans and yixing teapots. And to that's where it, tea being a global commodity, you see these cross-cultural interactions. And um, so it's, it's interesting. Yeah, there's, there's pros and cons to both. And I just want to talk about the contrast too. Like when you're talking about a large English teapot or sorry, a standard English teapot that to us maybe would seem large, maybe it's like four or five cups and, and, uh, you would brew it once and, and pour out your cups versus an Yixing or a Gaiwang where you would brew for 15 seconds, 20 seconds, and then you would continually brew. And so I think that like, I was really surprised the first time I had tea that way, where I was like 15 seconds, like I was used to doing four minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, of brewing my yeah. tea. So I was like, how can you get anything in 15 seconds? Um, and then you could go 30 and, and 45, but it was such a short amount of time. And when I saw how m- how many leaves were packed into that know, little um, vessel, yeah. th- then, I, I, then it started to make sense. But so for me, it was just that, that connection of such a short time. How can we accomplish anything when like, yeah. so breaking those, um, breaking those traditions of how I was first introduced to tea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And moving into that spectrum. I think, it, yeah, exactly. And it's it's just the, coming down to the variable of ratio of tea leaf to water. So knowing how strong tea leaf is, if you have a lot of water and a little bit of leaf, you need more time. If you have 
um, same amount of leaf, but less water in a smaller teapot, you need seconds. And I think anybody um, would kind of come to the same conclusion that once they had tea brewed for minutes in a small teapot like that and not like those short steeps, you'll just, after one taste, you'll know like, oh, wow, like there's something going on here. We need to brew it less. And it's something that you just have to kind of experience. But yeah, it's something to, I have to, it's been a while, but to think back to the first time I saw it, I'm like, it looks like they're just like rinsing the leaves. It's so fast. Like, what are they getting with it? But this cup is amazing. So, you know, how did teapots and tea vessels ever evolve to be larger? I mean, what is the, I understand the whole experience here. And so that's the fascinating part of seeing how they evolve and then compare it to the Turkish style of tea. Talk about strong. I've had that. Uh, I had many cups of tea on, on a trip to Turkey last year and um, it is the strongest cup of tea I've ever had. And you can't physically drink it unless you are really Turkish. <laughs> you were born and raised on these, on these tannins, holy buckets. But um, they load it up with sugar. So you, the sugar to kind of coat it so you don't taste it, but you still, your stomach still has to like break it down. So um, you can get like kind of like light tea or dark tea and they have like different names for like the strength of it. If like how much water they dilute the, dilute the tea concentrate with. I was definitely like a light tea drinker. <laughs> can you, um, just to go back to the color and trying to like kind of break, at least my, it took a long time for me to break my bad habit of wanting to extract a certain amount of color and using the visual clue as like knowing when my tea was brewed. Could you say that it's more important to look at your time and temperature and then color is not really a factor or is color like is is there a certain point or a certain tea where color is part of the point maybe i mean with a matcha you can't ignore the color but yeah. with other teas like where what role does color visual cue play to really answer the question i have to go back at the beginning of when they started using glassware glass in brewing vessels and in china from what I've seen um, in other areas, the categories that you need uh, to cool water in, which is white, green, green, yellow, white, right? Um, glassware is used more so because it helps. It doesn't, you know, keep the heat in too well. It helps cool things down. And it's a very pretty, generally whole leaf or very buddy, tippy tea um, that's entertaining to see. And so it's use, useful to kind of cool it down. So I think the aesthetics of color kind of came in with those categories. But um, if you're brewing in a gaiwan, I know there's glass gaiwans out there. No, that's kind of a newer thing, I think. Um, or in a yeasting teapot, it doesn't matter. That That is not um, part of it. It's really more what do you call a gongpu cha of just brewing it so much and having that practice where you just have a sense of you just know it's done and how and you bank first on knowing through that sense that it's finished and then when you pour it out you're like second oh that's a great color for that infusion of that that knowing I guess so I think it's really kind of common with glassware um, and I think using color to, to, to determine when it's done I wouldn't I wouldn't bank on 
I try not to use color. <laughs> what I'm saying. It's a crutch. Yep, that makes sense. Yeah. And I, like I said, I've, I've had to unlearn that yeah. and brew my white teas at the, stop at the time that I'm supposed to and then just like keep going and then taste it and be like, okay, it's okay. Yeah. It, it has, <laughs> instead of my my desire to keep going and get like a little yellowy yeah green color yeah yeah i'm 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 stuck in it as well i I was thinking about just not using glassware at all just to train myself and just to but Mm. um i do like using glass it's pretty the leaves are pretty when they brew and i definitely fall into like i just want it darker but why Mm -hmm. why is darker good i it's that's in some psychologies psychologists in here to figure that one out definitely Cool. Well, let's get into more of the meat of today's episode. What are some of the climactic conditions? Like what, what does tea prefer? So tea is really unpruned is a very tall tree. Um, and it grows in a temperate forest. So does that mean it needs shade? It is a shade loving. Yeah. It's a, it's a forest tree. It basically, it's not tea tree. That's another confusion you should clarify. It's not tea is a tree, but it's not tea tree uh, <laughs> as we know it in the botanical world. Um, and yeah, it's a very tall tree and it like it loves shade. It loves a diverse, healthy forest environment, really. And so how we see it is like long rows of green in fields, right? Um, and that essentially is... Uh, if you look on at the root at the base of the uh, of those of those rows, um, many small trunks, and those are ch- um, just like as we prune like cedar bushes and use outside our house for landscaping. Basically, um, is a row of of tea trees that have been pruned down to be bushes and to grow all at the same time. So when they grow together, they're a consistent level green row, basically. And they're meant to be like flat or a little bit round on top to be what's called a plucking table for at like waist height on average for ease of plucking. So tea can be grown, is grown like that around the world in monocultures um, or, you know, uh, even like a plantation with different sector um, sections or acres of different varieties, depending on what type of tea you want to grow um, in rows like that. But in um, with some shade trees, actually um, scattered around the plantation if they can if they were already there or if they had money to like plant them because you know you've all seen pictures like a hillside that's just solid tea and no shade those bushes bushes are are stressing out actually and you can you can taste it you can taste the stress i've definitely had coffees that have well actually for me it's more like i can taste the the stress in a fermentation if it's been very if it was a, a not enough nutrients in that fermentation. I can taste some of those stress compounds with coffee that I think comes from stressed plants. To me, the coffee can taste tired. Like mm-hmm. it's just like very low concentration. Yeah, yeah. Where I'm like, there was not a lot there. Like this is a tired tree. Like this is yeah nearing the end of its life cycle. So what's the general life cycle of a tea plant? Like how I know they can have a hundred year old. Yeah, and there are yeah. There's some very this reverence that. Um, kind of like getting back to birthplace and this origin. I mean, tea is still grown in the wild there and semi, semi-cultivated in the wild in different agroforestry landscapes and mixed crops um, in parts of the birthplace and across 
uh, China. And um, well, actually, I want to go back to this concept of stress because it's with our language. Yeah. So for you in tea, tasting stress, or you can taste the stress of the plant, and that's negative. Mm-hmm. But just pulling it back to wine for a second, um, a lot of winemakers would like to they purposely stress the vines to concentrate the flavors Mm -hmm. and so in winemaking stress on the plant uh, can be a positive thing obviously if you stress it too much you kill it so there's there's a a balance there but there is a certain element of artificially stressing the vines by how you crop them adding other um uh, cover crops to compete for nutrients and just make that plant a little bit hardy so is that also the case in tea where there is that competition or do you want because it's like we're really talking about different parts. In wine and coffee, we're talking about the fruit of the plant. But in tea, we're talking about the leaves. Yeah. And So I think that's a really big difference huge, that we overlook. Huge difference. Okay. This is not the yeah, fruit. Yeah, it's not the fruit at all. It's actually young leaves. I think um, cultivation of plants, uh, cultivation itself is stress. And, you know, pruning a tree down from you know, 60 feet, what have you, um, there, they can grow at different heights is stress and, um, constantly picking leaves and pruning it to not flower and to not fruit is stress. Every time you, um, you know, remove a part of the plant, it's gonna, you know, life wants to survive and procreate. The plant wants to put out flowers and wants to fruit but it's constantly being stunted, right? It's constantly being, um, you know, two steps back, one step forward type, type deal. So I think that is stress. And there is, and that all yields to an outcome that we desire, which is to f- pick fresh, fresh things. So there is good stress, there's necessary stress, and there's bad stress, I think, for all the crops. And But for tea itself, it, um it's tricky because if you are up against a deadline or you need to make an order, there's definitely some, you know, there are some farmers that will pick every single new leaf bud on the bush, right? Or harvest too much where you actually just kill the plant. You, you, you kill Mm. the bush, you kill the tree. And, um, so what percentage are you, or is it recommended to pick so that that doesn't happen? Oh, it's going to be different for different cultivars. Um, and different varieties. I mean, it just depends on what type you're growing because some are are in the way that you cultivate will produce a lot of leaves. Um, and it's just, it's a really foolish thing to do. Um, and anybody who's a tea grower knows that you don't want to har- over harvest because you will not have it next year. But if mm-hmm. you are in dire situation, if you're in dire situation and you need to to pick tea to survive, you might do that. Or um, also if if money's tight, you might every now and then you need to let the bushes rest and you need to do, um, we call it like a die or like a big cut, like the big one where you just have a year where you just, you just cut it back and let it grow again, like a, like a deeper cut and you just kind of let it rejuvenate. That's something you can do if you can afford to do that. Right. Um, and not everyone does, and that does help the plant. Um, but just like with coffee, it can be a workhorse too. So tea being, um, native to this kind of temperate forest environment of um, southwest China and you know northern Southeast Asia and into India and kind of like the cooler hills, it has a flexibility range. It can go, there is a season of rest for a lot of that birthplace, but then there's also a more of a tropical 
and there's no seasonality. Tropical landscape, there's more, no. So you can find plantations in the world today where there is no rest. There's no, there's no winter. And you can taste that when the bushes keep going and they're not given any rest whatsoever, um, where they just seem tired. They don't produce as much, right? So how old are they is your, your initial question. You know, they can go for a few decades. Some say, you know, some of them can go longer. It really depends on how you maintain the bush and how you run it. I feel um, on average that the bushes will be older if they are grown in an area that is more similar to its native environment. If it's grown outside of it, it's you're going to get what you can get. And not that it's bad at all, but you know, the plant is stressed. It's, it's putting a polar bear in the Amazon. It's, it's sweating, you know, <laughs> in some capacity. So, and when we were talking about oxidation yesterday, like with the story of um, the tea from Taiwan where the aphids come in, you know, that's a plant stress. And that, that's, that's a response to the plant to well, oxidize. But then also like the chemistry of the leaf will change a little bit because it's trying to defend itself. So that's, um, you know, was an unexpected stress that has a, had a positive outcome. So there are different things that you want, different soil types. If you're designing a, a tea garden, you know, you want to look at soil, you want to look at drainage, you want to look at what side of the, the, you know, mountain you're on, are you north facing, are you south facing, what have you. And all of that's going to lead to how the plant will grow and how it will respond and ultimately the chemistry of the leaves. So you do need stress, which is a weird thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I was also thinking, I'd never had this thought until this is conversation right now, but if you have, when growing grapes or when growing coffee, and because we only want the fruit, we have a very clear signal of what to pick, whatever's ripe and red or the color that we're looking for, and then you stop because you there's nothing else there. But with a, a tea plant, because you're harvesting the leaves, I hadn't thought like you could harvest every single leaf. Like there, you it may be a little bit more difficult to know when to stop or what's the adequate um, stopping point for picking that. Um, actually, the stopping point is um, new growth. You really just need new growth. Um, the epidermis, if you if you they don't bend, they'll just you know the surface it will just crack. The leaf will just will just crack. It's too hardy. You can't process it. And if you ever look at spring's a great time to see this. There's bushes with you know, the new growth coming, you know, if you look at, there's a bush right out, right down the street from me where it, they, they pruned it to be a flat thing and there, it's just flushing. Mm -hmm. And there's like two inches of this bright lime green growth and the rest of the bush is like emerald. It's that lime, it's that lime green vegetable matter that you harvest for tea. So you know when to stop generally, but if you're in a climate that's always producing leaves because it's hot and the bush has no season of rest, then um, it does it does it can get tricky. And there are some bushes where you harvest ten. Usually, there's some teas that are just the bud, just ridiculously expensive for a good reason. And then, or one two leaves in a bud. There's some teas that you need go down four or five. You like you need the maturity and the chemistry of those mature leaves to make the teas. And those are oolongs. Those are great oolongs. You get that complexity and then there's some um teas going into like the brick tea culture that go down to 10 leaves in a bud those are rougher leaves and the chemistry would be completely different but if you want it, like this white tea that i'm drinking you want young leaves because that's where the sugar is 
new growth mm-hmm. is like those you can pick off um any there's a lot of edible plants i'm not telling you to go out and just like chew on trees but you can t- take a lot of um young plant buds and if you if you chew on them if they're safe or what have you they're going to taste a little sweet because that's just the that's the plant that's energy of spring coming through and you know leading that growth so spring um tea can be harvested all year round because it's grown on all latitudes right now around the world but usually spring is the crop year for most of the teas around the world and um they're sweet if you take the buds it's fresh tea leaves are really bitter but just like with um, any young shoots they're going to have that sweetness there and that's what you want to capture one thing that's really interesting to me and why I wanted to talk to you was we tend to conflate these two things. We, we always say like coffee and tea. You have like as a category together, like as consumers, we think coffee and tea are very similar. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about this too. There's this book called How to Taste by Becky Selengut. It's fantastic. But one of the, she's a, a chef and she's, it's uh, very much helping like the layperson understand what makes food taste good. And she does a lot of troubleshooting. Like if you made something that doesn't taste great she's like gives you tools to troubleshoot your food but one one of the things that i remember the most from her book is that she really wanted consumers or she really wanted people to separate salt and pepper as like we just put these two together they like in our heads they go together and the seasonings they go together and she's like they these two things have very different roles in our food and they do very different things Mm -hmm. and salt has a whole world of what it can do to flavor in terms of an amplifier whereas pepper is like a very distinct taste and so she's like we need to stop thinking of salt and pepper as like these two things and i think that tea and coffee could benefit from really being separated um for a lot of the reasons that um we talked about last time and that i want to talk about today the other thing that's interesting from what you're talking about how tea spread so quickly and I th- I think that may be for two reasons that I'd love to delve into the first one is um well I think if we're trying to compare tea and coffee the processing of tea to me seems a little bit more simple than the processing of coffee just because coffee you have six tissue layers that you need to remove and each step requires special machines and um or just a lot of labor because there's a lot of kind of barriers to finally get the seed. And then once you have the seed, um, having to roast it and then having to grind it and then having to brew it, like there's a lot more involved in it. Whereas, and this is where I'd like you to uh, educate us more on what it takes to process tea. But my my image as uh, an amateur is you can pick the leaf and then, you know, dry it out in the sun and then shape it in some way, and then you just put it in water. Like, it feels like there's not that much more to it. So Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Correct. I love that. I love that. That's ex- that's excellent. Um, it can be as simple as that, actually. <laughs> um, there are some teas that are still made today where um, you, you, you do. You just, um, you, you can pick them and dry them in the sun. Um, and it, for any of, like, the foragers out there, that's... Uh, drying drying leaves is a preservation technique, right? Drying, you're moving moisture. Well, I'm thinking the simplest example. So if we're looking at like the lowest barrier of entry to processing, and so if we're looking at a white tea, like how quickly could you go from harvesting to packaging to drinking that tea? If you were on site, I mean, you could drink it. You mm-hmm. could drink it within a day. Okay, so you could wither within that same day. You could pick it, wither it, get it to the point where 
you could brew it for within a, yeah i'd say within 24 hours there's some wither, withering that goes from very just a few hours up to like 15 to 20 hours very slow very long you know you can rush as you know in coffee I mean, you could rush every step and get it out but the, mm-hmm. you're gonna lose some quality along the way but i'm just wondering what that range is because for example like we know that we can age a poor for decades mm-hmm. And so the moment of harvest to actual consumption can be 20 years. Yeah. Or I'm just trying to find like what yeah. that range is of how soon you can drink something. So a green tea, because you need to um, you need to have that kill green step and deactivate the enzymes and fire it, you want to produce, you want to make that tea as fast as possible. You want to have your factory and your tea gardens as close together as you can. You want to eliminate premature withering by gently handling the leaves from when you pick it into your basket, into a truck. You know, the truck going down the road, and if the leaves in the back are how packed the truck is and if it's bouncing and stuff, like all these small variables from field to factory are going to like impact like the quality of your raw material. Um, so you want to eliminate that as much as possible and you want to make that tea as quick as you can. So thinking again of that oxidation scale, you can have teas, um, green teas, um, even faster than whites, than oolongs, than blacks, than puars, you know, than dark t- or in other dark teas, right? So you can go from like hours on one side of the spectrum to days, weeks, months, years on the other side of the spectrum. Because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm also thinking, and that's really interesting that gentleness matters Mm -hmm. in tea which i would say is not the case for coffee um, (laughs) in coffee production gentleness is not a widespread factor yet because so much like we think of this as seeds as being a lot more and they are more robust and more hardy um, and you can you know put a lot of weight and pressure on them and so i think in coffee production we're not thinking of that and i think personally to the detriment of the quality so it's really nice to see in tea as well as in wine that gentleness is a big part of quality yes i think that's something that coffee could borrow from the other industries come on over to the green side (laughs) come over to the gentle side (laughs) yeah (laughs) so the other thing um so i'm trying to like narrow that window of like how quickly you could get a finished product to taste and this matters to me because in coffee production it can be so long from harvest to removing the outer skin fermenting the mucilage layer drying the seed Mm -hmm. so like that part can take about let's say on the on the like normal end maybe 24 36 hours to get the seed kind of isolated and then drying the seed could be anywhere from a week to five weeks um drying in the shade Mm -hmm. or in the sun and then it still needs to be like shipped across the world. So by the time a mm-hmm. consumer gets it, it can be, you know, four or five months later from yeah, uh, from when it was harvested. But even the producer themselves, from the moment they harvest to having a dried product and being able to taste it, if they even like have that as part of their quality control, it's a very long several months. So then if you're like, oh, I didn't really like the way that turned out, you don't have a lot of feedback or like a short like feedback loop to then make a, make a different choice. Yeah. But I feel like with tea, is there something like that where mm-hmm. you can quickly see the result and then maybe change your processes or change your practices? There is a little bit of wiggle room within the harvest season, for sure. Yeah, that is, that is something that's very different, I think, between the two. Um, you know, in some degrees, of course, 
you know, it's an operation. You are committed to the plan that you had for that year. Um, but you do have a little wiggle room. Yeah, you can, um, when you pick leaves is important. So if you picked a batch where you just like, you know, this is, this is the discussion that, that, that growers have, um, every year, but you know, it rains a lot in spring. Tea is harvested in spring. You don't want to harvest leaves right after it rains because the plant is flooded with water, diluting those compounds that you need. And um, if you do pick it, you might have to wither it for longer. Do you have the materials in the space needed to wither it for longer? And it might slow up production if the next day is sunny and you need to rush, you know, rush and get things through the line. Um, and also you have a very slow window, as you know, as just like every, every, um, trees grow, it puts out a bud and then, you know, a day later it can have a bud and a leaf and then it keeps growing, right? A leaf and the stem just keeps going vertical. You can imagine it keeps having, if you just, if you want to make a bud tea and you can't harvest your, you can't harvest because it's been raining all week. Um, then your plant now has a bud and three leaves. So you have very small windows that you need to take. And that's the crop report coming in like live time um, every could year. Could you then make a different tea? Could you say you we would, wanted to make a white tea and now we have to make a new Well, one? you would make like if you were, if you have a cultivar or some genetic, genetic material that um, that is great for white tea production and you miss the window um, for a bud tea and you just know that you can make a better white peony, which is one or two leaf in a bud standard, plucking standard, then you might make a white peony. But that depends, of course, on your buyers and, and what have you. But also, I mean, you're talking about how quickly you can taste these teas. Um, so there is a little bit of bigger room and some teas can be made very quickly and some can be, be made very long. There are some people that can go right to the factories and get that tea made and go back home that night, you know, theoretically. Right. You can find you can find teas that were picked a month ago. That's really fast. Or even even you can you can even find teas that were picked this year. You know, still and more of them, and the quality is getting better. So it's a great time to be a tea drinker for sure because we are lucky that we have access to some really great teas. So I'm also curious. I was curious about that. How quickly you could taste the product to know if uh, some tea producers uh, are also tasting their teas is that part of the quality control are they the ones that are doing it or is a different part of the chain doing it uh absolutely yeah tea growers um tea growers are tasting their teas throughout every lot batch um and then tea buyers um will taste for purchase and then they'll taste once it's imported on arrival and so that was some of the work that i was doing um, when I was working at Rishi was some cupping quality control of different Asian leaves. Because I would say that's a huge difference with coffee where coffee growers do not taste their own coffee. That's crazy. Yeah, lot, to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot further down the chain. And for me, yeah, it, it seems so obvious and crazy because it's like, how do you get better? How do you know what to do? But it's just not part of the culture. And I think a, a big part of that is it's very difficult because coffee, and this was the second point of um, why I think tea has been able to spread so much more quickly and, and so much further is 
lower barrier of entry for processing and then also for consuming. And I think a lot of people, I was listening to a, a talk yesterday about, um, it was uh, somebody who was working in Rwanda and Rwanda grows fantastic coffee, but they don't have, they have very, very poor. It's like 2% of the population it has consumes coffee in the country where they grow some of the best coffee. It's crazy. So there's not, yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> there's crazy. not local not local consumption and they said when they went out to talk to the producers and they said you know why don't you drink coffee they drink tea first of all but they said they didn't drink coffee because they felt they didn't have the equipment they're like i have these green seeds what am i going to do with it like we've embedded this um this idea that you need all this equipment you need a specific roaster and you need this grinder and you need this kettle and you need and otherwise it's not going to taste good so they're like well i don't have those things so i'm not even going to bother and we've made it so um, inaccessible to the people that are growing it. Yeah. And I think, again, to the detriment of coffee. But it's really nice to hear that tea growers do taste their own tea. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure there's some people that don't. But tea tasting has always been, yeah, has always been part of its production and its trade. There's a few different ways to cup teas, depending on, of course, what type you're cupping. But there is a standard set for black teas. Uh, and cupping really became some pictures. You'll see a lot of pictures coming in of like of of Westerners cupping teas, and a lot of those old images. They're cupping blacks um, because once tea really started being produced in a tropical climate where it was all year long, and there's batches. It's just the bush is always growing, so you always need to harvest. You always need to make tea, and the production's a lot faster. You see these long tables of black tea cups. Um, and the, uh, just cupping those different lots, different times of day, different days, different different steps, different grades uh, of the tea. And uh, with a spittoon right there, because speaking from personal experience, you cannot drink all the tea that you cup all day long. To, it's all in white porcelain, so you can see the liquor color or the infusion color. And you slurp and then you spit um, as fast as you can down this line. And it's amazing that... that one taste can make or break a deal. Yeah, I think, uh, especially with winemaking, I did taste a lot of wine. We'd have a table of 30 glasses of wine, and you have to spit because not just the palate fatigue, but you actually do uh, absorb alcohol, and so you do walk around a little <laughs> little drunk most of the day. Just, just a, a little, little bit. Just a little drunk. 6 a.m. And um, But I think the benefit is that because as the winery we're tasting the production of we're tasting our own production there's no sense of speed or hurry there's no time placed on it to make a decision we can taste Mm -hmm. at our leisure and say okay we're going to taste these 30 glasses of wine and then we can have a discussion or maybe we will sample like tasting the wine was to make a decision in our wine like we weren't making a buying decision it was just a production decision and Got so it. I think that sense of urgency um, oh, is very different. Yeah, it is like to be a tea taster in America, um, you have, are at a huge disadvantage because you need to have trusted partners at origin to send you samples that are appropriately labeled as fast as possible. And then you need to have the um, cupping sets and the right water, as we were talking about, um, to cup these teas and then have a phone to um communicate with them and to make decisions and then 
and to buy them on the spot. So I've been on tables where, you know, you know, with a whole lineup in the middle of a line, you taste a cup and, you know, we're on the phone purchasing it because there are buyers around the world looking for the for the best teas every year. And that's that is the challenge with tea and, and other industries as well. But the ge- the geography um, is definitely to his disadvantage. And it is it's very fast. Like come springtime, um, we're in it right now. There's people doing this right now to try to buy teas for the rest of this year and into the next crop year um, for some of them. Because some of these white teas, you can only really harvest them for um, a few weeks. Like some teas, you only have a very, you know, teas and categories, you have a very small window. And so it's once a year. And if. Well, and I'm also thinking when, when we were tasting, when I was tasting and I worked at the winery, I never, like, a preference or taste was never a question it wasn't do I like this the question was always how is this made and so Mm. thinking about okay what's the acid structure if it's a little too tart is there something we can do to balance that out like I'm always looking at the construction I'm tasting for construction and I'm tasting for okay it's tasting a little bit thin here's something that I can do or I like the body of this one or maybe we'll make a blend like preference or liking that's interesting never came into it that's that's really that's that's interesting it's like well, I mean, preference and liking, I mean, is definitely part of it. But there's definitely teas that, you know, I... So what are you tasting for? Yeah, I mean, like how... I mean, what you're looking for is what tea tasters would be tasting or growers would be tasting for at origin, right? Um, you know, production production cupping. Um, what I'm cupping for, what I was cupping for um, was just 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 gen- in general quality and if it matched the sample that we purchased so we always have you always have a reference sample and you cup side to side for on you know for teas when they come in and um you are looking if they're consistent if it's what we bought you know did they someone screw up the labels you know did they, you know is there some confusion there is it and this is where just experience and doing it and practicing cupping is important where, where you're cupping a white peony is it a white peony is it a good white peony? Like it. So you're tasting for like true to type. True. Like there yeah. is a standard of what is expected. Something is expected to taste like, and then you're saying, does it match up against that expectation? Yeah, and also, is it good enough for, um, or do we think our customer base will buy it? You know, there's plenty of teas where um, it may not have been my favorite, or I would prefer something different. Like my own you really have to kind of check your own bias because you're not the one buying the teas. You know, you're putting this out into the market and there's a degree of this like awareness of like tea qualities. There's some that came in where like we could sell this at the cheapest price and people still probably won't like it, you know, but this tea is amazing. There's still a degree of that. So mm-hmm. my preference is it doesn't always come in. You have to think about who your audience is. For sure. So there is a little bit of preference, like, you know, there might be a table of like six lots of the same tea and they're all amazing and you have to pick your favorite and you're just like, oh, God, can't do it. You know, like I want to sell them all and we can't because they're all single origin, single cultivar, um, you know, small batch productions, but you have six small batches and they are amazing. Right. And you can't just say, We'll take all of them and we're all going to, we're going to blend them all together because that defeats the purpose, right? 
So it's tricky for sure. And you. So and have you had to make that decision or were you on a table and then someone else made that decision? And- it was all group decisions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was, I was a voice in the room for sure. Um, so how do you decide that? <laughs> it's really hard, but sometimes it, it will come down to preference of just like, you know, we think, you know, we like this one for, again, it's really going to come down to the type of tea. I'm just, right now I'm picturing oolongs because they're really hard to cup because they're kind of squirrely. They will present themselves differently and different brewing and cupping methods. So you really have to um, do them a few times and just see how they brew out. Um, and you really just kind of saying like, okay, well, this one has, you know, pineapple, hydrangea, lilac, lilac flowers and this one has more roses like which one which flavors do you think people want you know what type of experience so you have to kind of anticipate what sort of experience your customer will want and you know there's certainly teas that you know you miss the mark on you put on you miss the mark so it is different but I think also things you're cupping for you really have to know about the origins you're buying from the the category of tea the type of tea and the year, I mean, cupping vintage teas is difficult. Um, and you also need to know a lot of the ins and outs of the trade. So when you're cupping black teas or teas that are sold, um, you know, in, in bulk, like black tea is the largest category by volume, right? So you are looking for defects. How is it packed? How is it stored? You know, um, you want to look for tea is hygroscopic. It's a challenge. Like, is there moisture damage? Does it taste like cardboard? Is it stale? Um, is there some sort of microbial activity going on? I mean, we are doing safety checks as well. So how to cup teas is different for what you're cupping, what you're cupping 100%. And that just takes experience and practice to do it well, for sure. I was also thinking, you mentioned oolongs, and that was one of my uh, graduations as well. Before I really looked at tea for for flavor, for aroma, and the, as I like green teas, um, some of those flavors. And then when I went to oolongs, I suddenly started paying attention to body in a way that I hadn't with other teas, where it wasn't just what am I smelling and what am I tasting, but the weight of those teas. Yeah. And those were the first ones that were more, um, that really brought that into my uh, my consciousness. Did you brew those in a gaiwan? Uh, not at first. And then I got one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, did you uh, find that there was more body or I would even say like a thicker mouthfeel when you brewed those oolongs in a gaiwan? Yes. Were they green oolongs? I don't think so. How would I know if it was a green oolong? If oolong category can be, can be ball rolled or, or holy for unrolled. Um, they can look like blacks and they can look like green. So it's literally where the leaves like more like a green color or were they less oxidized than? No, they were pretty dark. Really darker. Okay. Um, I'm just curious. So I'm just trying to pinpoint which time, which one that you do. And so there's some oolongs that are really, really thick. Um, I would say almost like a buttery consistent. Like I was just going to say buttery. buttery. It was very yeah. buttery. Yeah. Some people don't like using. And creamy. Yeah. Some people don't like using like dairy terms when talking about tea, mm-hmm. but when it comes to like texture, uh, it's very accurate, I think. Right. And and that's why I hesitated saying buttery because I'm like, it, it didn't taste like butter. It wasn't the flavor yeah. of butter. It was the texture of butter. It was the weight, the viscosity of butter. Which is confusing because there is a milk yep. oolong out there. <laughs> it's a whole other story. We won't get into that one. 
you know, the American consumer, American consumer isn't going to have a huge impact on how tea is grown in China. Right. Mm -hmm. But I feel like with coffee, that's the opposite. Oh, absolutely. There's so many producers that are growing a, a geisha cultivar that is completely trendy. It's just something that won a bunch of competitions and that competition created these, you know, larger ramifications for growers where they're looking for these seeds, they're planting them. And I'm concerned because it can take so long to get a harvest out of uh, a new a new plant and customers are fickle. And so maybe by, you know, five years when it starts to produce, people don't want that anymore. Oh gosh, yeah, I know. That's... That's agriculture, yeah. I just remembered, I did want to talk about, uh, I got a question recently about producers making uh, cascara tea and why don't more coffee producers do that? As if, and I think it's the same mentality that I had earlier on. I'm like, oh, tea, you just take the leaves and you dry it and then you have tea. Like, it's that simple. Everybody should be doing it. Um, I think a big difference with coffee is the cascara, the the skin, does have a lot of sugar as uh, and not just carbohydrates but glucose and fructose and sucrose so you're creating a very um, microbially rich substance that can spoil and mold which is that a concern in tea i know there's are carbohydrates but it's not as directly a sugar um yeah well it being it being hygroscopic it will absorb water for sure and it will start it will just rehydrate itself and then it will start getting funky yeah um yeah, it, it is a concern. I mean, that's a defect that you're looking for, for sure. Um, but speaking of cascara tea, I actually had a memory where a few years ago we brought it into the office or somebody gave it to us and uh, we brewed it and I was so caffeinated. Very, very <laughs> caffeinated. Like, so I'm, I have such a high tolerance for caffeine with tea. I usually don't feel it often um, with some. But when I had mate brewed, Traditionally, I was did not sleep that night, and cascara was another one. And I was like, um, my heart was just racing very quickly from somebody who so in a tea office. We were trying this, yeah, and we're just like, okay, well, it's it's part of our education. I was like, okay, everybody, come on in. This is a new trend. You're gonna maybe see it. Don't get it confused. It's not part of the tea plant, you know. And then we left it in the drawer, and somehow it ended up on my desk. And um, I remember opening it up and going like, oh, whoa, like. Not, not, <laughs> not, not mm, like I didn't know what was going on, but I took the executive decision to compost it because yeah. I'm so sorry, but it was, it was funky. And I was like, I think maybe I even, I think maybe I brewed it, but I did not make sure nobody else did and decided that something was going on there and I didn't want to jeopardize my gut and health. <laughs> I think that's really, yeah. And I, good for you. And I think that's really common um, because the misconception is all you have to do to make tea is dry a product. I think, yeah, I, I, I just think that learning more about processes makes them more accessible, but also it's like knowing what you don't know and that it's not as easy to make tea as just like drying it in the sun because we've seen that it, it doesn't really work out. So I was just thinking maybe Cascada could benefit from the what green tea goes through in terms of the stuff that kills the enzyme, maybe sterilizing the skin and then being able to dry it a little bit more safely and then drying it drier than you think it needs to be dried. <laughs> going below yeah I remember being um pretty dry but I remember being I had it 
it's, it's, I'm just very curious. I, I need to know more about cascara because one I had that was like almost the whole cherry skin. Like it was like, just like popped out and they kept them intact. And then the next mm -hmm. one was more broken um, that I had. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you, um, you, you tell me, I mean, should it be dried to a complete crisp? I remember them being a little soft maybe, but I mean, to me, yeah, softness would be a sign of too much moisture and therefore you have a higher risk. I, I don't know. I haven't seen it made properly and I don't necessarily encourage um, producers to, to do it because I think also tea requires specific tea equipment. And so when you're, and coffee producers are already so lacking in resources that to ask them to make a completely different product um yeah it just feels like a lot and it, it feels like you know tea producers have so much history of how to grow their tea and make it that to make something kind of as a as a byproduct something as like an afterthought like that like yeah. i just don't think that's a good way to start do you think it's something that um you see growing in the u.s market as an option a caffeinated option i do i see it, i see it growing and i'm just not sure it's a good thing like i see it growing in terms of it's kind of interesting and so it would be market driven but i think again it like the market would be asking producers to do this having very little information of how to do it they would just dry cascara in the sun and then sell it and then have moldy things and you know, it's sort of like the blind leading the blind. It's like, hey, I want this. And people are like, okay, I'll give it to you. But like neither one knows how tea is made or <laughs> what should be do, what should be happening. Yeah. Or maybe we should just make a whole new name for it and not call it cascara tea, but call it mm -hmm. cascara fruit infusion. Make it really long. <laughs> make people not want to use the term. Special thanks to my guest, Aurora. I personally love tea and learning about the history and trying to see how it compares and contrasts to wine and coffee. So in the future, I will invite Aurora back to talk more about this. So if you have any tea-related questions for her, um, just let me know. And if you want to learn more about how the green leaf hopper interacts with oolong teas, I have a research paper about this from Kyoto University in Japan. So you can join Patreon at patreon.com slash making coffee to download it. And while you're there, you'll also be able to download a PDF with six different tea flights that were curated by Aurora. So if you're new to tea, we know it can be kind of in intimidating to know where to start. At least it can still be very intimidating for me. So I asked her to make this guide, which is kind of a roadmap to help you identify different tea types and potentially help you find your new favorite tea. And it really helped somebody like me who can kind of get stuck in a rut and just kind of getting the same teas over and over again. It, it really helped me open up my mind and try some different teas that I hadn't ever heard of or that I hadn't even considered uh, trying or even putting together. So it's a pretty cool tool that you can find there. And I'll also link Aurora's website uh, in the show notes. So you can find that there. And I think that's it. If you enjoy listening and get value out of these episodes, please share them with a friend who loves coffee or tea or wine. If you want to be notified when the next one is coming out, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee, and lucia is spelled L-U-X-I-A dot coffee. Thanks for listening, and remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee. And really, you might want to consider up-leveling your tea game too. 